was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to introduce our guest, Broadway's funny man, Brad Oscar. Brad Oscar made his Broadway debut in 1990 in Aspects of Love, and if you've attended Broadway since then, you've no doubt seen one of his standout performances. He was Tony-nominated for The Producers and Something Rotten, and has also appeared in Jekyll and Hyde, Spamalot, The Addams Family, Nice Work If You Can Get It, and Big Fish, and was slated to play Frank Hillard in the upcoming Broadway show Mrs. Doubtfire before the pandemic happened. Off-Broadway, he's appeared in many editions of Forbidden Broadway, Sweeney Todd, and Broadway Bounty Hunter. He played in the out-of-town tryout of the First Wives Club, and he's toured in Young Frankenstein and Phantom. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Brad Oscar. So, how did you first get interested in theater? How did I? Well, I was very blessed I had parents who loved going to the theater. And so uh, I was introduced to it at a relatively young age um, and with cast albums as well in the house. I grew up in Washington, DC. So uh, my folks had the opportunity uh, to see shows try out as I then later did, which was very exciting because DC you know, used to be a great stop for shows before they came to New York. So my parents saw the original productions of Hello Dolly and Promises Promises and other shows that they saw try out in DC before they came to Broadway. So anyway, they were interested. It was natural that I, so I picked up, I absorbed whether it was listening to albums or them taking me, you know, at first we're talking, you know, community theater and, and, and smaller, you know, stuff like that. But then at a relatively young age, they did take me to Arena Stage in DC, which is DC's, you know, premier regional house, where I've since had the pleasure to work a couple of times. And um, I saw the musical Raisin, a musical version of Raisin in the Sun, which was actually trying out at Arena, which was interesting because in those days, shows didn't try out at regional houses as much as they sometimes do today. You know, a show would be at the National Theater or the Kennedy Center. Um, but anyway, so I did see that and I must have been all of, well, that was, that's, well, actually, you know what, I, now that I'm thinking about it, they took me prior to that because we had the luxury of also this theater in the round where stars would tour in their shows. So literally, I remember, I think it was the summer of 72, I got to see Gwen Verdon and Ray Walston do Damn Yankees. And I got to see Angela Lansbury do Maine because they would take out their shows for the summer and tour and it was fabulous. So, yeah. So, you know, I was bit and I was listening to these albums and wearing out my parents' albums of MAME and, and Damn Yankees for sure. And um, yeah. So, there. so did you always know that you wanted to act? I mean, I guess from when I, yes, from when I ever knew about like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up, I guess, because I'd had that exposure to 
people doing that as a job, I guess. I understood that enough to know. I remember when I saw Raisin, the young man in Raisin, the boy, was played by Ralph Carter, who later went on to play the younger son on Good Times for all those years. Um, and uh, we got to go backstage. My parents were great about getting us backstage, you know, not in a pushy kind of way, just to meet and say hi. And we would wait at the stage door, but occasionally we would actually get backstage because my parents would say, you know, we're with my, our son, he's so interested in it and he would, whatever, whatever they did, God bless him. Um, so anyway, I remember going backstage at Arena and meeting Ralph Carter and later being very overwhelmed by that feeling of, you know, desire and want and possibility and understanding that somebody right there my age was doing something that I think for whatever reason, you know, really sparked something in me. And I would, you know, dance around to cast albums, lip sync, if you will, you know, way before RuPaul was lip syncing, I was lip syncing in the basement in Rockville, Maryland to the cast albums, you know, but anyway. Um, so yes, I always felt like this was something I wanted to be a part of and do, and because it was nurtured. And then I started to do, we do plays you know, in school. We do plays in our basement. We drag our friends, you know, to put on shows. Uh, and then I was very lucky to be a part of many summers growing up of an extraordinary theater department at the Jewish Community Center in Rockville, Maryland, that had an amazing theater department for kids. And so from the age of about, tw uh, I was 12 when I did my first summer until, uh, almost till I went away to college in various ways that place provided a, a, a fabulous place to, to learn and grow over the summer with kids who were of a like mind, who also loved doing it and had a passion for it. So, you know, so it all lined up in that way. You know, I always loved it. And, and again, my parents supported uh, that love and nurtured it. And um, yeah, here we are. <laughs> what were some of the early shows that you performed in at the JCC and at school and other? Well, first, that first summer, I was Muddle the Tailor, oh. Fiddler, yes. It was great, we had a wonderful direct, I just remember, you know, these people of course make such an impression on you at a young age, but, but you know, I remember that we were, we were taken seriously as children, as actors, if you will, by the director of Fiddler. And they were very, uh, they cast a Seidel who was literally like two feet taller than me. I still hadn't really shot up at that point. And we had such, you know, they had such fun with them. We play, I just remember uh, the idea of that we would explore that as part of what the relationship, you know what I mean? That's not in the script that, that Seidel would be two feet taller than Muddle. But at that point, it probably wasn't two feet, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So anyway, yes. So uh, first I played Muddle. The following summer, I played uh, uh, Horace Van de Gelder in Dolly. Uh -huh. And um, the summer after that, I played Fagin in Oliver. So, you know, so right away, of course, I was also playing roles that were 50 to 60 years older than I was, you know, because I was, of course, a young character actor. But, but yeah, those were, um, those were my initial, you know, real uh, forays into doing a complete production of a show like that. Um, yeah. And they were great summers. They were just great summers. Yeah. yeah. So where did you study acting? Did you study it in college or? I did, I did. Now, again, as I mentioned the JCC, during the school year, they would also have acting classes. And I learned stuff in those classes, you know, and this, I'm probably now, you know, I'm 14, 15, but I'm getting ready to go to college. Just amazing, like breathing exercise, stuff like that, that when I got to Boston University, which is where I ended up going to major in, in theater, in acting, um, it was, uh, 
uh, it was so wonderful to have learned a lot of these things that a lot of my fellow students were sort of just, you know, understanding or at least getting to explore in that way. So, um, so I feel like my real theater education as far as teachers and people who taught me also vocally, I had a voice teacher who was and still is to this day a dear friend and part of my life and she, uh, she was a huge influence on me both personally, professionally, technically. So I was really lucky to have some really good training before I actually got to Boston University, which was, you know, which was fine, which was its own, you know, I believe any institution of higher learning as far as that goes in the arts, it's all subjective. So just as they're going to be teachers you love, teachers not so much, ideas, concepts that jive and others that don't. And so my education at BU, which was not a musical one because they didn't have a musical theater department. And I decided mm -hmm. I wanted to have four years of text, if you will, you know, I had done musical theater so much up to that point. Uh, a lot of stuff, obviously the JCC. And so I thought, well, you know, this would be good. I'll keep up my singing and I'll do musical theater over the summer, which I got to do. I would go home and do a, a summer dinner theater thing at uh, Montgomery College, again in Rockville, that was also a wonderful place to be. And I played some, I got to play two roles that, well, certainly one role, the leading Kiss Me Kate, Petruchio, that I would uh -huh. you know, never get to play <clears throat> in a professional production. But man, at the time, I was thin enough and young enough. Um, and then the following summer, I got to play Harold Hill. So, you know, I got my fill of, of, of the musical, uh, but then I would go back and get to do, you know, all the whatever, Shaw and Shakespeare. And so, yeah, so that was my education at Boston University and um, then, then moved to the city, like so traditional, you know, graduated in, 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 the, in the spring and, and moved to the city in the fall of 86. Yes. So uh, you mentioned that you moved to New York City. When did you audition for your first sh Broadway show, which was Aspects of Love? Was that soon after? Or? Correct. But the real answer to that question is I auditioned for my first Broadway show in the fall of 1980 when my father drove me and a friend up from D.C. for the open call for Merrily We Roll Along. Because, you know, they were casting that original yeah. production with, they wanted everyone under 20. I, I think 20 was the cap, if it was even that high. Well, I used to get Variety every week, and at the, in those days, Variety had casting notices, and I saw this casting notice, and it was too good to be true. The next Sondheim Prince musical was casting, and they wanted teenagers. They wanted me. So anyway, my dad, God bless him, drove me and a friend up. I think her mom came as well, Lee. And hi, Lee, if you're listening. <clears throat> and we were at this huge cattle call that is uh, in the film, The Best Worst Thing That Ever Happened, which perhaps you've seen, which yeah. is a wonderful documentary about a really special show that, you know, always still tries to find its way and speaks to many of us, especially to me, because at that point in my life, when the show actually came out and the album came out, I was literally going away to college. So, you know, all the hopes and dreams that that whole show is about, it was, you know, the show means a lot to me, needless to say. And um, so anyway, blah, blah, blah. My first audition was the cattle call for Merrily and then a callback actually that um, I got. And I came up a couple of weeks later and, and you know, and I remember at the time and God bless them, they were, they were so wonderful. Joanna Merlin, who was the casting okay. director and, and Paul Gemignani, who was the musical director. And, uh, and right away they said to me, you are, you are one, you know, you have much talent, much ability, keep studying, keep moving forward. We don't think there's anything for you. We don't think whatever they said, it was yeah. it was encouraging as well as like being like, oh, well, I guess I'm not gonna make my Broadway debut at the age of whatever. And, you know, so anyway, 
So that was my first. And then I moved to the city after college and I was able to get my equity card because I was already a member of After SAG because I had joined that. I did some TV work in DC as a kid. Um, so I was already a member of After and SAG, or After, I'm sorry, at the time, just After. But anyway, and I started, you know, going to the open calls and, and literally went to the chorus call for Aspects of Love and um, ended up getting the job, yeah. you know, really, yeah, in that sort of, in that way. So yeah, I had waited tables for a couple of years in the city and was very, you know, life was, life was fun. I was auditioning and seeing shows because I worked at a restaurant called Charlie's which then became Sam's on 45th street, which no longer exists because they tore down that whole bunch of restaurants and have since not built a damn thing. But um, anyway, uh, we got a lot of paper to shows, you know, we got free tickets to shows and previews mostly. And so, you know, I, you know, again, continuing my education, because I've always said that half, half my education, I think half of anyone's theatrical education, you know, comes from, from seeing things from, from, you know, absorbing in that way and, and critiquing and understanding and finding new, you know, ideas and thoughts and seeing. Uh, so yeah, uh, it was a great couple of years. And so, yeah, I went from waiting tables on 45th street to doing aspects of love at the Broadhurst uh, on, on 44th. So, you know, again, it was like, wow, is this really happening? Yeah. So what was it like to be able to work with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Trevor Nunn on your first show? Well, it was great working with Trevor. I didn't really work with Andrew at all. I, I, I literally don't think I said hello to Andrew. Andrew was very distant. I mean, I think he tends to be this way. I did the Phantom of the Opera tour years ago, the new production that went out and um, also came in his within his orbit. But he's not the kind of, you know, guy that makes a point of, introducing and talking, you know, he might be shy, whatever it is. So anyway, I literally, I don't know that I said word one to Andrew during the entire Aspects of Love experience, really. I remember on opening night at the party, trying to get close to him to thank him or whatever, you know, and that didn't happen. Um, so anyway, but Trevor, on the other hand, was was wonderful because, you know, our first couple of days of rehearsal were everything you know you would think they would be with a with with a Brit with a director of that you know stature and that sort of um, uh, the work that he had previously done the way he works with actors so it was very exploratory and very you know talking and creating and doing you know improvisation and stuff like that so that was really cool to be a part of at that point and to work with him he obviously had already had great success with you know the big monster musicals and so to be a part of that train as well, because a lot of the cast of aspects were, um, well, a lot, some of the casting was apologized, was making up for chess, because a lot of these people had been in chess, which as we know, did not necessarily fare well over here in the States. Um, so it was a lot of that. And, and you know, some, and people who had done Les Mis and, and uh, so yeah, it was, um, and I was a swing. So again, it was a different way of learning a show. Um, was not a very challenging show for a swing, thank God. Oh. Because I'm not very, would not be a very good swing. A show that was dance heavy or required, you know, my mind doesn't work that way. And I'm not a dancer. I can move, you know, once I learn something, I can parrot it back to you. But yeah. so anyway, um, yeah, uh, it was, a, you know, it was, a again, it was a fantasy. I was on my, you know, I was doing my first Broadway show. I, I got a show jacket. I mean, a show jacket meant everything to me in those days. You know, we don't do them as much anymore, but boy, that was, that was the bomb. So, um, yeah, and I ended up going on for 
you know, a couple of nice stretches of time, which was nice to have more than, you know, one or two performances as you often do when you're a swing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I got to settle in and, and, you know, as I said, meet some great people, the late great Greg Mitchell, a fabulous dancer and, and, uh, and, and, and person in general who, um, uh, because I was a swing and he was the dance captain, you know, Greg took me under his wing as far as teaching me the dance that I needed to know and uh, was somebody that, that was very special to me on that production. And, and God bless him, practically, you know, died on stage doing what he loved and did so well. He had had heart issues and he, um, but anyway, uh, you know, those are the things you take with you, of course, that remain the special things about a show, the families that we make along the way, you know, so anyway. Just a big shout out to Greg, because I always think of him fondly. He was a good guy. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, because you were mentioning these Broadway shows that were also on the West End first. So Aspects of Love did well in both places, but a little better on the West End. So <laughs> yes, a little did you, better. Did you think there was a reason for that? Or did you know? Well, um, I think that, um, the show's bound to do better over there, just perhaps just based on the sensibility and perhaps based on just the fact that it's an Andrew Lloyd Webber show. And, you know, um, but uh, it's, you know, it's a tricky show and, and they, it was far too over-designed in a way for what it was. There was so much expectation. It was the first show after Phantom, I think, to, uh, of, of Andrew's to open on Broadway. So, you know, those expectations existed and certainly there's it's nothing like Phantom in that way. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a terrific score. I think lyrically it's challenged at times, but I think that Andrew's score and the motifs and the way he uses them, cause you know, we got clobbered for, you know, we hear the same melodies five and six times. Well, we do, we do. That's, that's yeah. how he writes. It happens in all of his stuff. It, it is what it is. But um, I, for one, happen to think the melodies and aspects and the way that they're used uh, is quite lovely. But you know, you drink the Kool-Aid, as I always said, as well as I always say, you 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 know, you need to believe in what you're doing up there. And, and um, so, uh, but yeah, but I think the show, you know, it's not the great, it is what it is. It's tricky. Those relationships in the show are tricky. It's hard to make an audience understand and care about people who seem really just a little sort of selfish and uh, manipulative. And so it's tricky, but I think smaller productions, one of which I did get to see in Chicago years ago, a storefront oh. production as they call them, um, you know, helped make it, uh, the material made a little more sense, I think, when it's a little more intimate and, and perhaps you're just able to, you know, as long as they're making sense of what's happening, we can tend to make a little more sense perhaps. So, so you know, but I think it's a tricky show. We still managed to run a year, but you know, we were, that second half of that run uh, was playing to half a house, but they could afford um, to run it needless to say. <clears throat> but um, yeah, but there was a certain Halloween, the only Halloween that we ran when the mezzanine at the Broadhurst was entirely empty because they would move people down to the orchestra. And the professional swings, me and, um, oh gosh, I guess I shouldn't name them. You can find them on IBDB. We had a lit pumpkin and we ran through the mezzanine of the Broadhurst during Hand Me the Wine and the Dice in act two with a lit pumpkin for the amusement of the ensemble. The most unprofessional thing that has ever been done on Broadway. <laughs> Probably not ever, but. But I, I feel it's time to tell the story now of the great pumpkin, because there are there are tales now that on certain nights when the Broadhurst doesn't sell, that very pumpkin is still seen floating back. All right. So, 
I want to ask you, being a swing, were you always at the theater or did you ever have to go on at the last minute? Um, well, I did have to go on at the last minute at times, but yes, we were at the theater eight times a week from, you know, half hour to, we could leave like, you know, like 10 minutes before the show ended, sort of, you know, you, you get to leave if you're not on, you get to leave when, you know, the last opportunity you would have to possibly get on stage if someone were to have gotten hurt or whatever. So anyway, so I think it was probably when that, when Hand Me the Wine and the Dice started, which was the last big number in the show, it's a funeral and it's the last company number, ensemble number in the show. So probably when Wine and the Dice started, we got to, but um, there were, I only remember, uh, I do remember my debut, my Broadway debut was for a track that I didn't think I was going to have to cover. You know, you sort of think, you know, you know, every, there were four, there were three swings, uh, but two men, me and Wiley Kidd. And we'd sort of divided up basically who would cover what. And Wiley certainly was covering more of the dancer and or yeah. younger, whatever. And I was covering more of the character, more of whatever. I still, I'm, I'm forgetting the reason. Wiley could not go on. And, and uh, an actor named Kurt Johns, who's doing very well for himself in the, in, the, in the theatrical world, was out. And I had to go on for Kurt. And uh, it was a track I was not, you know, and, and the costume was, oh God, it was, it was some, there was a big circus or some number and I had to be in some like leotardy thing. It was just, oh my God, but it was my Broadway debut, damn it. And it went relatively well. And you know, you talk about Trevor, one thing I'll always remember is being in the dressing room and the, the God mic comes on, you know, the backstage mic and we hear, you know, dear company, you know, what a wonderful show. And I want to congratulate Brad Oscar on a marvelous Broadway debut. And, you know, and uh, so, you know, very special night. But, um, but so that was sort of last minute-ish, ironically enough. Um, and then of course, the classic story of going out to dinner with your friend in between shows on a, probably on a Wednesday or, Saturday, perhaps. No one's been out for the matinee. Everyone's in, so I'm probably not going on that night. So I'll have a glass of wine or two. And oh. I did. And of course, uh, now did I, gee, didn't have cell phone. Oh, all of a sudden I'm thinking, how did this story play out? We didn't have cell phones. This is 1990, my friend. Oh. So I guess, I guess I get back to the theater and I'm on for Marcel. I'm on for the one principal role that I cover. Not a huge role, but you know, her manager, lovely role, nice, you know, easy enough, fine, I was fine, believe me, I can handle a glass or two of wine. Mm. Um, but um, but uh, yes, but I do remember that again as a last minute thing, but yeah, but remember in those days too, all we had was our phone. There was no, you know, no email, no cell phone, crazy. How did we survive? <laughs> <laughs> so after this, you did a few editions of Forbidden Broadway, off Broadway, so did did you consider yourself an impressionist first? Would you do impressions ever for fun? Uh, you know, maybe a little bit, but not that. No, I certainly didn't consider myself an impressionist in that way. That I had friends who could, you know, do stuff that I thought was far more, you know, facile and whatever. But um, uh, I had um, I had a, my friend David Benoit had been doing the show and was leaving. And David said, you should audition for this. And I thought, well, can I do it? And David was like, you can do it. Just, you know, do your best of everything, you know, find one or two that you think you do very well and then just, you know, fake the rest. And, you know, and that's basically yeah. what I did for, you know, for the next uh, about two years I did Forbidden Broadway, both here and in Los Angeles. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I could do a decent, you know, Mandy Patinkin. I could do a decent like Sammy Davis Jr. Not that that mattered, but I remember audition wise, I was like, what can I do? Anthony Newley, you know, those that crazy sound, God bless him. And so, you know, I did stuff like that. And, you know, and then during the run, um, like I remember distinctly having to do Sinatra in a, in a Forbidden Christmas version that we did. And I, I couldn't, I could not wrap my, how was I going to do Sinatra? I didn't. I did Bill Hartman, God rest his soul, from Saturday Night Live and many other things, who did a great Sinatra on Saturday Night Live. I did basically Phil Hartman doing Sinatra, which was my, you know, my way in. So, you know, I would find those things or whatever. But, um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. Forbidden Broadway, of course, was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. So who were some of your favorite people that you got to parody while you were doing it? Oh, gee. Well, um, you know, ironically, of course, I got, I came in to the show and they were still doing the best of edition uh, or, or greatest hit kind of edition. So I got to do Nathan Lane in the Guys and Dolls sequence, you know, which was, you know, fun and funny enough at the time. And of course, you know, even then, and certainly to this day, God bless, you know, Nathan has provided both inspiration and, and, uh, uh, oh gosh, so many things, you know. So, uh, so I, yes, I remember doing that. I, I uh, had the great pleasure of getting to play Miss Saigon in the Saigon sketch because the, uh, it was non-traditional casting because that was in the original production of Saigon with Jonathan Price playing engineer, you know, so. <clears throat> excuse me uh so anyway um she what else i got to do mandy i think um we had fun because we got to and i say we uh, and when i'm talking we because we were this you know you're, there's only four of you and uh, over the course of the year and a half that i did it in the city we did three or four different editions so i was part of the creation of two of those new editions me craig wells suzanne blakesley and christine petty and um it was great fun putting together new material, you know, all the trial and error, watching Gerard um, and his and Philip George who assisted him, uh, you know, watching them put together the, watching us all suggest stuff. I, I am very proud to this day that some of, I have a lyric or two and Kiss, Kiss of the Spider Woman sketch. Um, a couple of those, you know, there's a lyric or two that, that popped into my head that stayed. So, you know, we all were able to, and those were, you know, that was really fun because again, the whole spirit of Forbidden Broadway is, you know, sending out what you love so much. And so it was, it was fun to be involved with that. And it was also fun in that horrible, like, you know, I'll talk about this one day and we'll laugh at, here we are. This, the, the, the sketches when we were in previews with these new editions, the sketches that would totally tank. I mean, they just, there was going to be no way for me to be Gregory Hines in the Jelly's Last Jam sketch. It just, number, it just wasn't going to work. It was a, it was a solo number. I don't know what I was singing. It literally was in the show for a few nights because it, you know, and it was just a combination of whatever, you know, me, but, but we couldn't make it work. And so certain things, you know, we had a, oh my God, we had a number where Daddy Warbucks takes Annie to New York to see a show but it's hard to find shows to take Annie to because they're all about AIDS and HIV. Because of course we were living in, in that horrible dreaded time. Um, so the idea for the number was funny enough, but somehow when we went into the chorus of HIV, 
it didn't play. And literally it was a springtime for Hitler moment in the audience. And, you know, and I love telling that story because you know, that's, you know, again, man, comedy, you know, you got it, you, you go out on that limb or whatever. And then sometimes you find, okay, no, we, we have to, we better get off this limb real quick because it's about to break. So, so, you know, so anyway, but those were things, you know, again, very fun and special and things like, you know, those are the, those are the things that are sticking with me. <laughs> so Forbidden Broadway is famous for having a constant stream of celebrity visitors. So did you get to meet a lot of people? Well, one of the highlights of, we, we did the show in Los Angeles the summer of 94. The summer closed, the, the show closed in New York for the first time in after it had opened in 84, oh. whenever it started, the show closed in the beginning of 1994. And then later that summer, the four of us went out to Los Angeles and did it for the summer at the Tiffany Theater. A wonderful summer, so much fun. A legitimate theater, not a, not a room like in the basement of Theater East where we were on the east side, which was like such a low ceiling and such a horrible, oh God, and no dressing room and whatever. And, you know, real dressing room space. and. So here we were at the Tiffany, this wonderful proscenium sort of wraparound, great house, you know, gosh, if it even had a hundred seats. But <clears throat> so anyway, because it was such an intimate space um, and we knew she was in the house, but there was nothing better than hearing Carol Burnett laugh out loud, you know, at Forbidden Broadway. And then of course, come backstage and be the gracious, wonderful person that she is. Um, years later, when I was playing Max and the producers on Broadway, when I had taken over the role, um, I got out of the shower after the show and my, my, my dresser said, uh, you know, there's someone here to see you. <laughs> I was like, gee, who could it be? And, you know, it was Carol Burnett and she came back to say hi and see me, you know, I don't necessarily know that she'd even made the connection that I had, you know, we had met, through, but whatever. Again, people like that, that you idolize and worship who then, you know, take the time and realize that it would really mean something to, you know, it was very special. So yeah. Um, Carol Burnett, of course, was one. Um, the LA is coming to mind just because I'm thinking about it. You know, B. Arthur came, oh, you know, who wow. I worship and, and feel like I've learned again half of my, you know, timing and comedic takes and how to really deliver the zinger. It, you know, nobody does it better. So it was thrilling to, uh, to, to meet her. She came to the show. <clears throat> um, Carol Channing, you know, who, was, who loved the show forever and was a part mm -hmm. of the recording that we did as well of the show. We, Gerard had written that number imitation for her. And um, so, yeah, she was, you know, gosh, I feel like I saw her several times over my Forbidden Broadway experience. Um, uh, I also remember just because she left us soon afterwards. Um, and now, of course, listening to me, I'm, I'm totally blanking on her name because I'm getting old. Uh, from Bewitched, Elizabeth Montgomery. Thank you, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. So anyway, some great people. Um, yeah, it would come because, you know, yeah, stars loved it. People loved being, you know, made fun of in that way and celebrating. And we would have casts of shows that would come sometimes on a Sunday night when oh. we were here in New York, you know, and that was always fun because you had industry people and, you know, friends or whatever. So, yeah. So your next Broadway show was Jekyll and Hyde, but I want to ask you first about the pre-Broadway tour, which you were telling me you did. So how did the show sort of change during this? Tryout. Um, well, the show had been done in 1990, I believe, the summer of 90 at the Alley Theater in Houston. Um, you know, you talk about the randomness of show business. I was doing Forbidden Broadway in Los Angeles, and Frank Wildhorn and Linda Etter came to the show and loved it. 
and said to, I thought all of us, but I think only me and Christine ended up doing it. Would you like to be a part of the ensemble of the concept album of Jekyll and Hyde that we are making like next week or two, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, I was like, great. So that's the album with Anthony Warlow, the two, the two disc when there were still discs. Anyway, so I'm on the, I'm, I, I do that gig there. I get to meet them. They're lovely. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm getting an offer to go on, to go be a part of this production that's going to start in uh, Houston and Seattle. It's just going to be Houston and Seattle. Uh, this is the end of 1994, right? 95, yeah. Um, so that production, again, being directed by Greg Boyd, who had done it at the Alley. Um, and that production happened with Robert Puccioli and Christian Noll, and of course, Linda Etter. We did Houston and Seattle. It was what it was, but it was a, you know, the kind of take on Jekyll that at that time, you know, with the scaffolding and the lighting or whatever, yes, it was a certain kind of show, but that was the show that it was. And audiences loved it. And uh, <clears throat> so then a couple months later, we go out on a nine month tour. The uh, same three principles, but uh, different, you know, some differences in the ensemble or whatever. I don't even remember anymore because again, my Jekyll and Hyde experience now, you know, goes one step further to Broadway, which was again, another incarnation. We finished the nine month tour. We find out this is not the production that is coming to Broadway. Oh. There's going to be yet a new production that's going to come to Broadway next year, being directed by someone else, not Greg Boyd, a man named Robin Phillips, who I had the pleasure of working with on the Aspects of Love tour. And I hope everyone is hearing my tone on this podcast. Robin was a brilliant, but very difficult man. And we could talk for hours, fascinating. But anyway, he was directing the Broadway version of Jekyll and Hyde, which I was like, well, that's just ridiculous. That's unbelievable. How is it possible? that I could possibly come in contact with this man again, much less the fact that he probably won't cast me because we didn't have a very good experience together on Aspects of Love when that ended, uh, which is a whole other story. But anyway, I end up being one of the couple people in the ensemble who was offered the Broadway production, you know. So again, uh, but with Cooch and Christian and, and Linda, and, that's a, and that becomes the Broadway production. So, it, so you ask how it changed. It changed in the sense that uh, I think they didn't want it to come in and look like all those other shows it was constantly accused of looking like and being like, which is from Sweeney to Evita to, uh, uh, there's another one, you know. Anyway, you know, that kind of show with the scaffold. But it worked for the milieu. So anyway, in, in order to reconceive it, I think for Broadway, they brought in Robin, a new director, new design. Um, it was different. It still had its own issues, I guess. Audiences still seem to love it. The show opened to not great reviews. We did not get a nomination for Best Musical that year. And yet we ran longer than all of them, including the winner, Titanic. Um, audiences, you know, kept it going and it ran for almost four years. So yeah. you can't like, you know, it was, that was, a, and that, believe me, I was, again, that was another blessing, a really great group of people. And I was, doing what I loved. I was living at home. I was in my studio on 46th Street, you know, going to work every night. I mean, I, those were very happy days for me. Cause again, that was just my dream, you know, to be a part of this business. I just, it was a very satisfying time in that way and, and a really good group of people at Jekyll. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to ask you about what was it like to be working with Frank Wildhorn and Linda Etter and have them be 
I don't know if they were married, but at least dating at that. They, well, they were, yes, they were dating at first and then they got married while we were, yes, while, while uh, I think once the show was, yeah, up and running because, yeah, we were at the wedding. Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, I love Frank. I, well, I mostly I love Frank. Uh, sadly, Frank is a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, a team that, uh, you know, anyway, oh. let's not talk about that. Because <laughs> then I'll start talking about the Yankees too. So anyway, other than being a Dallas Cowboys fan, Frank Wildhorn is a lovely man and a very talented man. And I... Yeah, I love working with Frank. And I think that Frank, you know, um, and especially later in Pimpernel, you know, wrote some really great, you know, show stuff. I wish that, uh, yeah, more of his stuff, you know, could be done or that he would, you know, um, you know, I just, I think Frank is a great talent, God knows, an international talent. It's, it's unbelievable. So, yeah. so it was, you know, it was fun to be along for that ride because Frank didn't stop. I mean, while Jekyll and Hyde was on after, right after Jekyll and Hyde opened on Broadway, you know, literally six months later, there was Scarlet Pimpernel. And then at one point, Civil War was running. So we had three shows running on Broadway at the same time. Um, so yeah, and Linda Etter is just, you know, just magic in that way. Linda Etter is the most down to earth, you know, sort of country farm girl, if you will, who really would <laughs> prefer to just be on the farm with her horses. But God gifted her with this ridiculous instrument. And, um, you know, as well as being, you know, a really lovely uh, and she worked so hard on that show. Linda worked so hard in rehearsal on Jekyll. I'll never forget it because, you know, it's easy to, to, to look at someone like Linda and be like, oh, you know, what an extraordinary voice she has, but, you know, she can't act. You know, it's just easy to toss those things. People love to just make dismissals like that. I think of, you know, people with a certain amount of ability and maybe not so much on the other end. But, man, I watched Linda work in rehearsal for Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, with our director, Robin, who, you know, again, as I, what a mixed blessing he was. But let me tell you, as a, as a director, as an artist, as talking about the craft and, and watching him work with Linda and, and Robert Cuccioli uh, was, uh, was wonderful. And she worked so hard. And I think she gave a, a beautiful performance in the show, uh, as well as maintaining effortlessly, you know, that outstanding sound of hers. And we were at the what I will always refer to as the Plymouth Theater, which I think some people now refer to as the Schoenfeld. But um, so that's not a big house. So, you know, you can imagine hearing Linda Etter sing those songs on stage every night and, uh, you know, what that what that felt like to, to be a part of that and, you know, in the audience as well as, you know, being on stage with her. And so, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Linda. And, and, and again, they were always very good to me. You know, I was, you know, younger at the time, right? And so you... You know, it's always exciting when people like you, want you, respect you, your talent, whatever. And so they were very important to me in that way because they obviously did see something in me because, as I said, literally after doing that concept album, you know, a couple months later, I literally got a call saying, would you like to be a part of this production of Jekyll and Hyde? And I, at the time, thought, oh, you mean for an audition for this production of Jekyll and Hyde? And they said, no, 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 you have the job, just do you want to do it? And so, you know, and that was the first time I'd ever been offered it, just offered a job like that was, you know, was wonderful. So I will forever be grateful. And they have been, you know, very supportive. And through the years too, they come to see me, you know, and the other things that have happened since. And um, yeah, I love them both. Yeah, very much, very much. Yeah. So that show you didn't stay in for the whole four years. You left in the middle, I think. So. <laughs> no, uh, well, I, I did most of the four years they were giving us leave of absences those of us who were in that original company who had been there for a while 
So I got to go, like I did, an, I did my first encores at City Center. Um, and I also got to go play Santa Claus for Radio City outside of New York, in, uh, first in Los Angeles, and then in Branson. When I left to go to Branson, which was in uh, late 2000, I guess, um, that's when David Hasselhoff took over in Jekyll. Oh. No sooner had that happened than the notice went up. Go figure. So I then realized uh, while I was in Branson playing Santa, I'm like, well, I'm not gonna have a job to come back to because it was gonna close at the beginning of January, but you know, God bless it, it had almost been four years. So, uh, you know, and I was very grateful for that and it was time to move on. And then, you know, showbiz, the story goes on and on. Yeah. Calloway. And I get a call from my agent for a standby for the role of Max Bialystok in, uh, in the producer. So, you know, and I fly in and, you know, blah, blah, blah. The one thing leads to another. And the next thing you know, I'm getting out of my contract in Branson. And I'm in a rehearsal room right before Christmas, actually, uh, 20 years ago, right now, as we speak. I mean, the date must be, because it was before we went home for, I went home for the holiday. So it was right before Christmas, we started rehearsal for the producers uh, in 2000. And yeah, that, you know, so it was a whirlwind. But I did make it through most of Jekyll. And I am, you know, again, ever so grateful to have had that gig. You know, shows don't run for four years. <laughs> you know, most shows don't run for four years. It doesn't, it's a, it, it's a blessed thing. And, uh, and I know, especially when we come back, uh, we will all be very aware and very grateful for the work that we have and uh, you know what that really means because I uh, yeah we can't take that for granted yeah so I want to take a quick detour to ask you about encores which you were mentioning I think the show you did right then was Do Re Mi which is one of my favorites uh -huh. and I love it and it speaks to you see what amazes me and this is why I'm loving talking to you because you know I was so you know, the, the sound of musical theater, the, the telling of a story in that way was, was such a wonderful thing to, to latch onto and discovering older scores. You know, at the time I would literally go to the library and take out these albums, you know. So discovering, uh, so, so it's fascinating to hear, to, for, for me to hear you say that, you know, Do Re Mi is one of your favorites. With, and I love that. I love that it speaks to you in whatever way that it does because I have scores too that, you know, people would say, well, why are you a fan of, you know, that score, and it's like, wow, because for whatever reason, you know, and it's a terrific score, and my God, those overtures, nobody, I mean, Julie Stein, you know, some of those overtures are just the best, and so, yes, I mean, I'm sorry, you want to ask me about something more specific about Do Re Mi? Oh, I, I just yeah. wanted to ask you if you, what you like about doing the Encore series in general. Oh, well, that's, yes, well, that's exactly where I was going to, because let me tell you, as with Do Re Mi, and then, um, and then I did Bells Are Ringing, you know, ironically, another Julie Stein, Comden and Green. <clears throat> but man, those overtures, again, and with that orchestra, with a full orchestra, yeah. uh, which we don't get anymore, of course. Um, so to hear these shows, uh, you know, produced that way and to get that sound that you get, uh, there is nothing more exciting than the, the overture at Encores. And, it, you know, most of the shows they do tend to have overtures. Um, mm -hmm. So that's always my favorite part because all the shows I've done there and then I did an Annie Get Your Gun, which was more of a, a not an encore technically. I think it was one of their fundraisers in the fall or whatever. But anyway, um, all three shows had overtures and, uh, and every night I was right there on the edge of that stage, as close as I could be 
uh, listening because that's to me is just you know there's it's just the most exciting thing a good nothing excites me more than a good overture uh, you know the anticipation of of, of what's to come and, and all of that so um, yeah and I love of course what encore stands for right because these shows yeah. are going to get produced and so to be able to hear them with a full orchestra and uh, then ideally performed by you know some of the top talents in 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 our industry in the city which is so wonderful the people that have been a part of these productions it's just you know it's ridiculous when you look back at some of the you know the people and the shows they've done it's fantastic um so yeah so yeah i'm a i'm a huge fan of encores uh and you know god willing it's something that will keep going yeah is there another sort of rare lesser known show that you would like to do there? Oh, gee. Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, there are, I, I guess there are favorite scores or whatever. I don't know what I, it's funny, specifically, no, I haven't thought, oh, I would like to do something <laughs> at Encores, you know. Um, of course, I always wanted to, you know, for a while, it was always, of course, Mac and Mabel, but then they, then they yeah. did Mac and Mabel, right? Which, you know, was a wonderful one. Um, but no, nothing offhand that I can think of that I, yeah, you know, I'll mm. think about it. If I think it's something, I'll let you know. <laughs> so I want to go back to the producers, which we were just talking about. So you told me how you got it, but so what was it like to be able to work with Mel Brooks on this? Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it, again, just being in the room where it happened with those people um, and just, you know, observing, absorbing, um, you know, again, I was cast as a swing initially. So I was really stressed. Um, because that was a lot, that was a lot. I was covering the character man in the ensemble and you know, everybody dances in this grow show. And so yeah. it wasn't um, maybe I didn't do the more complicated stuff or have to tap necessarily, but believe me, it was, whoa. I was like, how am I going to learn all of it? How am I, yeah. But you know, Fortune, Dame Fortune took over and I, I never really was tested as a swing, which is probably a good thing or we would not be sitting here today. I can promise you because I don't think it would have, we would have had the same happy ending um, because it was a really tricky show. And uh, mind you, when I was cast or when I went in, I was only going in to stand by for Max and then they had me read for Franz. So in my mind, I thought, oh, okay. So, cause they just wanted to stand by, you know, which means you're not, covering anything else. Sometimes you don't even have to come to the theater depending on where you live and blah, 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 you know? And ironically later in the run, I, when Nathan came back to the producers, I stood by for Nathan. And because I live in Midtown West, I did not have to go to the theater. And it was ridiculous. I was making a full salary sitting <laughs> on my, I mean, it was crazy. It was wonderful. I was very, that whole experience. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, uh, it was, um, yeah, you know, you just, you know, you people say you never stop learning, you know, you always, but I mean, that was, man, uh, talk about seeing that in action, you know, as far as being in the room and watching Nathan work and what he would bring to the table and then what, you know, Mel would bring, you know, and just everybody sort of pitching in and because the material is there, the basis, you're, you, you have a very solid foundation to which, you know, from which you are working, you know? There wasn't a lot of, uh, we have to work, we have to make this scene work. How are we gonna make this scene work? No, the scenes were pretty much working. I mean, the film is gold. And then ironically, <clears throat> perhaps it's one of the few films that 
is structured like a musical. And the way those scenes in the first act build and the way basically we go the Wizard of Oz and we meet, you know, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, if you will, it's, um, you know, it all just adds up so well. So anyway, people feel very much happier and freer and cooperative when they know they're working on something that, that, that's gonna live, you know, that has life and is probably going to play. You know, we had no idea how good it was gonna play. We had no idea the reaction we were gonna get at that first invited dress rehearsal in Chicago. It was, it was I, I've never, you know, in my life, but um, so yeah, it was a, again, just another really great learning experience for me. And, um, and then especially when I was then thrust into the role of Franz out of town in Chicago, when I, well, as an understudy in Chicago, and then took over the role before we, when we came back to New York. So, so I opened as Franz on Broadway. Um, so especially then, of course, when I was, you know, playing Franz, Franz was mine, and I was still covering Max for the first year, covering Nathan. So then my work with those people got, you know, much more specific and detailed. And that was also, I mean, you know, terrific and a little overwhelming at times. I had to tell myself, you know, you're here because, you know, many reasons, believe me, there was a lot of happenstance, you know? I mean, I didn't, you know, the whole situation with me taking over Franz was crazy. And people write stories like that and things happen and, you know, you hear about it, but uh, it doesn't happen that often. So that was, you know, it was all so random and crazy. And I just had to try to stay present. And, you know, I loved it so much. I was so thrilled to be, obviously, to have this opportunity. And I had to trust that, uh, you know, I would just do the best that I could, really throw myself at it and, and trust that I was here because I was, you know, meant to be or because they wanted me here. So, you know, because it was a, yeah, it was a big head trip. I sometimes, you know, you think back and you think, wow, how did I, you know, get through that? It seemed so heady and, you know, and it was, but it was also wonderful and everything I had ever dreamt of. I mean, to be a part of a big new show like that and have a role, you know, and by the time we actually were in previews in New York and, you know, it was, it was going pretty well. We, you know, we knew we probably had a big hit on our hands. Um, so yes, it was thrilling and it certainly, you know, set the stage for my career. Certainly it gave me, you know, that, that one rung up or whatever, the bullseye, the, you know, the dartboard, if you will, suddenly people maybe knew who I was, you know, in that way that in our little village of Anatepka, um, yes, I was now in the pool a little more than I'd been in the pool before or whatever. And so that was also uh, very, yeah, special and exciting and, uh, and just led to some, you know, amazing opportunities. Yeah. So I've always been curious about that show. Of course, it was a giant hit, but did you ever receive any sort of backlash for the way that the subject was handled? Sort of. Well, I think, I mean, there was, yes, there, there, we know there was a guy in Chicago, yes, who came up the aisle during springtime for Hitler and yelled at Mel, because I guess Mel was standing in the back of the theater or something. Um, but to be honest with you, I think at that point, because most people knew the, most of the people who yeah. came to the show anyway, right? Were yeah. aware of what the show was about and had either seen the film or knew of the number or the song or whatever it was. So, um, and you know, no, I mean, then, you know, the number is so stunningly staged or whatever. It's like, uh, 
you know, it's uh, uh, people were you know, mostly, you know, overjoyed by it, you know, mm-hmm. and if you, you know, again, if you get the show and I look, I have, I have uh, uh, no issues with people who have issues with it. I have, I, I respect that and I totally respect it. There are some things that you cannot joke about. I respect that, but everybody has their bar. And so, you know, in this way, because Mel, as a Jewish man, decided in, in, in the many ways in his career, in many of his pieces, how he has mocked Hitler and the Third Reich and that whole yeah. mess. So, yeah. Um, no, if you have an issue with it, you know, don't come see the show. But no, we did not in general. No, we had no, I don't remember any major issues at all. So what was it like to be able to work with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick and the whole great cast? I mean, you know, again, it was, it was, um, it was surreal in that way. It was like a masterclass. It was everything you want. So, you know, I, I, uh, they were very, you know, again, everybody was very nice to me and very generous to me as far as being very supportive and happy with what I was doing in that respect, the people that mattered, you know, Stro and Mel and Nathan and Matthew, you know. Um, so, yeah, so it was, it was great fun. It was just, uh, you know, I'm still, because as we've talked about, I'm a fanboy. You know, I grew up loving this. I grew up going to the stage door and waiting for autographs. I grew up idolizing the people who did this for a living, especially the ones who, you know, were either uber talented or made some impression on me or whatever it was. So here I was working with several of those people, you know, Um, so yeah, I, uh, yeah, you know, just took it in, went with it, you know, tried to just live up to the occasion, if you will, but, uh, but no, it was, it was wonderful and it was challenging in the best way possible and challenge to me, you always want to be, you always want to have to work up to, you know what I mean? You can't, you don't want to coast. There's nothing downhill about what we do. You are moving forward. You are, you know, whatever that is, learning, doing, uh, breathing, living, reacting, you know, that show obviously, um, you know, took on a life of its own at times. And, and, and there was nothing more thrilling than being part of that. And then seeing how Nathan would respond or, or, or Matthew would respond. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, I learned a lot. And then I learned even more, you know, when I had to then take over the role of Max and, you know, sort of find my thing and yet recreate a certain thing, you know, that's a balance. Um, but yeah, it was a, an amazing, again, learning experience. Yeah. So, what was it like to be nominated for a Tony <laughs> It was, I mean, I, again, I feel like I'm saying the same things over and over again. It was, you know, it was crazy. It was, you know, as right, someone who's yeah. into theater yeah. in a way, you just, you dream about those things. It's crazy. You think, oh, God, could that ever happen to me? I mean, you know, I grew up, Tony night in my household was, you know, my God, more, more sacred than Yom Kippur, baby. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was a big deal. And, and um, so, yes, it was an, an amazing honor. I was not, I really wasn't expecting it. And I, and I say that because I had not gotten any other honor prior that season. Okay. So the Outer Critic Circle come out, the Drama Desk come out, whatever other awards there might've been. And I was not nominated as best featured actor in any of those for any of those. 
you know, and I remember thinking, well, of course, because A, there's a whole list of, you know, there's all there's so many people, especially drama desk and outer critics, which are off Broadway as well. But anyway, look, I was having the time of my life. It was not about me getting a Tony nomination. I really honestly feel, you know, felt that way. So yes, when, yeah, when it actually happened, you know, and I remember waking up and watching it on New York One because they were, they were at that point, they, they started broadcasting the, the nominations live on New York One, which was very exciting. Yeah. That had only been a recent occurrence, I think, several years before, probably. But anyway, yeah, and just, you know, I mean, bursting into tears. I mean, absolute buckets, as Cheetah would say. And um, yeah, you know, calling my, my folks and my sister, my family, and, you know, and then the rest of the day was just a blur, you know. Um, my friend Pam took me to lunch at Joe Allen. You know, it was it was very special. My answering machine was full. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And it was really also special and lovely to be a part then of that ride with, with all of them. Because, you know, there were six principals in the show. And, you know, and five had, you know, had established careers, all had been nominated before. I mean, I was the, believe me, I was the new kid on the block. And I was, again, just grateful to be there. But to actually be able to share then, because, you know, the Tony, that Tony window, which has gotten even crazier, because uh, the second time I went through it, you know, unbelievable again, uh, it was like, it was exhausting. And, and it wasn't as exhausting during the producers. But anyway, to go to the events, to be a part of those events, you know, the luncheon, the nominees luncheon, the this, the that, uh, to get to meet all of the other nominees for shows that year, you know, uh, just to get to know Linda Lavin, you know, because she was nominated for Allergist Wife that year. And I, I, you know, we spent time together at these, or came in contact with each other. And so, you know, things like that were very special. I remember, you know, how unique and, and neat it was to be a part of those events. Um, and yeah, and basically, again, I did not expect to win. I actually, uh, Gary Beach's performance, may he rest in peace, you know, was just a thing of absolute joy and beauty. And uh, I was, you know, I don't know, you have to have a certain amount of objectivity. You know, again, you drink the Kool-Aid. I believed in what I did and that I was pretty damn good up there and audiences, you know, seemed to really like me. So I was, I, I believed in what I was doing, but man, oh man, I, I, I would have felt like I'd stolen it from Gary. And so, um, yeah, I did not really think, you know, and I was thrilled when Gary won. And, and so, yeah, just, but again, to be a part, to be invited to that dance was just everything. And not just for me, but for my parents, my sister, my family. I mean, my folks, you know, again, you know, have been so supportive and wonderful. So for them to share in that, and my sister, you know, who's also a performer, um, you know, who was my date that night sitting next to me, um, that was also really as much of you know really half the joy because um it meant i knew how much you know they knew how much it meant to me and i knew how much it meant to them in that way because we all loved you know we're a theater family in that way so mm -hmm. my goodness to, to share that together um yeah was was really joyous and very very special so when did you get to take over max bialystok full-time well <clears throat> excuse me after a little bit of mishigas uh i took over well let's see nathan let, let, when did the boys leave we opened 
in April. So the voice probably left in April of 2002. And then there was a month with another actor in the role and that didn't work out. And I was at the opening night party of a revival of the Elephant Man, the first revival of the Elephant Man. And my phone rang and it was Susan Stroman. And she said, um, honey, would you, we, we'd like you to take over the role of Max on Tuesday. Um, we're letting the other actor go and it's yours. We're not looking for another star. We're not looking, we are, we, we, are, we want you to do the role, you know, for however long I signed that contract, that window. And so, yeah, and so the following Tuesday, now mind you, I had gone on for Max Bialystok over 70 times the first year for oh. Nathan, because the role is absurd. And, you know, no one works harder than Nathan and gives it all, but we are human beings and no one is built to do that eight times a week. Yeah. So anyway, I got to go on a lot the first year. So Max was starting to, you know, he's in my blood a little more. I was starting to own it in that way that you do again, because you get to do a couple or you get to do every matinee, which I was doing for a while, Wednesday and Saturday matinees. But anyway, yeah, so there I was that following Tuesday night, assuming the role of Max, uh, opposite the wonderful, dear, crazy, sweet Stephen Weber. And uh, we did, uh, yeah, and then I did it for about a year uh, in New York. And then I went on tour and opened the second national tour in Boston. And then I came back to New York. It was the gift that kept on giving. And, uh, and Max was, an extraordinary opportunity to have. And I, I always said as, as exhausting as it was and as dedicated as one had to be in one's personal life or whatever it was for me to get through that eight times a week, um, it was never boring. I was never over it. I was, yeah. I mean, I would sometimes, you know, that overture would start and I would think, wait, okay, you know, just get me through, just get me through one step at a time you know, just stay in the moment and you'll be doing Betrayed eventually. Because basically once you get through Betrayed, yeah. you can almost say, you know, it's not over yet. You still have at least three more costume changes and another dance number. But once you get through Betrayed, you're like, okay. So anyway, um, you know, but, but you, I could not ask for anything more in a role as, a, as an actor, as a musical theater actor, character actor. You know, it's just, uh, it was a joy. It was a joy to do. It was a joy to do and play with other fabulous, you know, I did it opposite like 17 different Leos, my, wow. my journey with the producers between guys who we were doing it eight times a week and understudies and swings, you know. Um, you know, work with some extraordinary actors in, in the other roles, you know, Roger DeBreeze that were just, you know, whether it was again, Gary originally or, or you know, the great Leroy Reams. Um, so yeah, it was great to take over. It was great to own it. It was great to finally let go of as much as I could, you know, the ghost of Nathan, if you will, because yeah. it was always in my ear. I mean, that's what I heard eight times a week. He was the, you know, he was the master. It was, you didn't want to futz with it. You didn't want to, you know, you wanted to find a way to sort of make it your own, if you will, but that didn't mean, you know, for me anyway, you know, changing rhythms or emphasis too much or really playing with the comedy of it. Comedy is a very delicate thing, but it's also a very specific thing. And I've seen actors play Max and they go for a different approach or they, 
they, they're obviously trying to do something different, I feel. And I've never seen it work. I've never seen a Max, you know, that is anything less than an Energizer bunny, if you will. Um, but also, again, the rhythm of the, the, the comedy. And uh, so anyway, to, you know, learn how to sort of own that and uh, channel everything that I learned and had been, you know, directed to do, although I was never told to imitate, you know, but again, I, I have mannerisms. I have things that come off uh, that are very reminiscent of, of, of Nathan. And that's, that is what it is. Yeah. You know, it probably got me the job in the first place. So, you know, as much as, you know, as an actor, the last thing you want to hear at the stage door, and believe me, I've heard it many times, is, oh my God, you so, you reminded me so much of Nathan. You were, oh, it was just what Nathan would have done, or whatever they say. And they mean it as a compliment. But you know, as a per, you know, as your own person, you're acting, you don't want to feel, oh good, I'm glad, you know, you thought you were watching Nathan for two hours or whatever. But nonetheless, I would have been a fool not to have taken, stolen, incorporated, learned from what he did. And, mm -hmm. you know, and that's how the show worked. I think that's, you know, the show is a machine in a certain way. And, uh, and again, I'm not saying you, you fitted, you know, you have to be a robot and I have to say exactly what he did and move exactly the same way. But, you know, I could find it was my challenge, I think, and my responsibility to, you know, sort of merge, if you will. And um, yeah. But I want to ask you, was it ever sort of disconcerting to have to be on stage and watch someone else do the role that you originated on Broadway? Oh, oh, you mean with other actors playing Franz? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, uh, uh, mostly all I would think was, wow, you've got it easy tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Franz is the perfect role. You yeah. have one, you have your one big scene in act one where the audience meets you, two songs, ridiculous songs. The audience meets you. You come on at the end of act one as part of that wonderful finale. And then you show up at the audition table. Then you get to do Hob and Z, the audience, you know, gold. And then a couple more scenes in act two. I mean, it was a wonderful track. You know, as far as doing something eight times a week, that's not gonna bust your ass, but it's gonna, you're gonna feel really, really satisfied at the end of the night. You've really gotten to take a chunk and, you know, it was so satisfying and wonderful. But anyway, yes, I would usually just think, well, you've got it easy, Franzi. Over here, I'm not done until 11.30. No, but um, no, because uh, I, you know, because I guess because I took over ownership of Franz in a way from the actor who had sort of originated it. You know, that's the nature of, of what we do. And, and it was so, please I was playing Matt I mean you know it was it was wonderful to be in the other shoes in that way and you know when I loved again the joy of working with other actors who did it so differently and brought their own again their own style or whatever and yet the comedy was still as it needed to be or where it needed to be you know so yeah I loved it yeah 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 so your next Broadway show was replacing in Spamalot on Broadway. So when you replace in a show, how much do you find that you can sort of find your own? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's tricky. And it's funny, you should bring up the question with Spamalot because Spamalot was a show where um, there was a little more uh, freedom at times to play. <clears throat> I, um, 
you know, I, I'm going into a show, of course, is a wild, you know, you rehearse with a dance captain and a stage manager. And, and then before you know it, you know, you're in costume and you're having your put in with the rest of the company. And, um, and it was, uh, uh, it was, you know, a bit of a whirlwind, certainly. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I tried to, you know, I'm not a big Monty Python guy. I wasn't a huge fan of, of Python necessarily. I respect the comedy, I get it. Um, but, you know, my heart was never really in it, interestingly enough, um, because it was also the kind of show that, you know, it was just all, you know, song and dance and one, you know, silly thing to another in a way. I, I don't know, I, I'm not dissing the show. And it was, a, again, working with, you know, some amazing people, starting with the, the one time I really got to work with, although I knew her for years, but to work with Marin Maisie, God rest her soul, you know, was a, a joyous opportunity. Jonathan Hadare, an actor I had worshiped for years, you know, again, the fanboy in me was like crazy. Um, but you ask about the, the uh, I think your question had something to do with how it lives and breathes and how it might be different every or whatever. Well, there was a moment where it was, it could be different every night. And I played this moment differently and had to do, it was that scene with the giant Trojan horse in any way. And I don't remember specifics because I probably blocked it out. So I would deliver a line that would hopefully get a laugh. Well, not every night, of course. Well, one night, this night, on this very night, I decided to just deliver that line like gangbusters. I just oversold that thing. And it, once again, it landed, or not once again, but... <laughs> Sometimes I go to laugh. Anyway, it did not land. Let's put it that way. It was the wrong choice. Who's in the audience that night? This is how many years into the run, I guess. Two years, maybe? I don't know. The director. Perhaps you've heard of him. Mike Nichols. Oh. So anyway, at intermission, and I don't think it's my fault, but anyway, at intermission, they announce Mike Nichols is here, and he would love to talk to the company after the show tonight which is sort of interesting because believe me, there are very few people who can come in and say, oh, by the way, please make the company stay after the show. I want to talk to them. Yeah. You know, that's sort of like people have their lives and people miss trains and that just doesn't happen. <clears throat> you know, you call a session for notes or something. Well, no, when Mike Nichols is there, you know, Mike, God, Mike Nichols. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, long story short, I was made an example of by Mike Nichols and rightfully so because you know, again, it was not the right choice. And his whole point was, you don't need to oversell this comedy. You don't need to overplay. You don't, you know, stuff that we all sort of know at heart. But when you're doing something eight times a week and you have a tricky line that maybe doesn't get, a, you know, and you're trying to crack it. So anyway, it was, you know, oh my God, it was of course mortifying, and, you know, horrible, but it's sort of a wonderful story to tell in a way because A, I got to work, I got, you know, beaten down by Mike Nichols, which again, like check, you know, dream, I guess, be directed by Mike Nichols. Directed could mean assaulted, so I'll take it. But um, yeah, and it was, you know, again, a, a learning lesson in that way to just check back in and, you know, don't try so hard maybe or search or, you know, whatever it was, but um. But that's what I remember about my Spamalot experience. <laughs> so you, you've done drag on stage. You've done a female role twice in that and in Lady Enid at Irma Beth at Arena stage. So do you, do you like doing that? Uh, I mean, it, my God, it's been fun. I also did get to play uh, Edna in Hairspray a couple oh. summers ago. Yes. 
interestingly enough. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, I think that uh, for me, at least in all of those roles that we just talked about, it wasn't about, you know, playing a woman, playing a role in drag. It was about playing, you know, Lady Enid in, in Irma Vap and who she was and her set of circumstances. Now, yes, I wanted to feminize my whatever. Uh, I remember, you know, working on Hairspray, which I was always terrified to do that role because, again, Harvey was just indelible. Harvey was that role I could not hear. I did not want to hear anyone else. I did not want to see anyone else. Yeah. You know, blah, blah, blah. And then I go and see it in London at one point with my old friend, old chum Michael Bowl, who I'd done Aspects of Love with. And Michael starred in Edna in the original and soon to be revival whenever they can get that back up. And, uh, and I saw someone else do Edna in a whole other way and it was charming and lovely. And I thought, all right, Brad, get over it. Wouldn't it be a fun role to play one day? And I eventually did get to. And, um, and that was wonderful because that role, especially the mother, the nurture, the, you know, and the, you know, so my only concern was that I was gonna be too much of a Jewish mother, that I was gonna turn her into, because that was, you know, I would go down that road. That was the one thing I had to really keep tabs on. But um, it's, it's, it's freeing. It's exactly what, what you hear. It's exactly what I had heard. There's something very sort of freeing about being able to play that way, about being able to disguise that way, about being able to embrace those parts of your personality, your, your whatever that is, your being that um, would be thought of or maybe judged or criticized, right? As feminine or this or that. And it's like, no, it's just, it's who the person is. And then yes, certain aspects that make them perhaps more masculine or feminine, but you know, I never thought of it in, in, in those terms, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, yeah, but it, you know, it's fun. It's fun because I also always say, God, let the costume and the wigs do half the work. And I'm joking, but what I mean is that it so informs a performance, you know, uh, especially a character who has a certain look, whether it be Edna or whether it be Nostradamus. You know, I found so much of who that character was in Rotten. Once we distressed the original beautiful costume that Greg Barnes had designed, it was gorgeous because, you know, all these Renaissance clothes were so beautiful. But all of a sudden, Casey took one look at it and said, that's not, but he needs to be disheveled and crazy and whatever. And it made total sense, of course, the minute we all were like, oh yeah, it's gorgeous. But, and then within the next couple of days, I looked entirely different in a way and it man it just unleashed it just you know unlocked unleashed it allowed me it, it gave me permission you know so um so yes in that way that when you're in drag of course especially uh it's the same thing in that way it, it's being able to have the not only the safety of that visual armor if you will but the the freedom to let it take you wherever that might take you yeah. 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 So you've done a lot of great roles in regional theater, some of it in Washington, D.C., but the one that I want to especially ask you about is playing P.T. Barnum in Barnum at a solo rep. So what was the experience? Yes. What was the experience like of having to sort of carry the show as you did in The Producers? Yeah. Um, 
Well, you know, Barnum was a show that I had seen originally because between like 1977-ish, when my parents started taking us up to the city for weekends where we would see four and five shows, you know, almost for the rest of my life, certainly until I moved to the city and was like, oh, I, I, when I moved to the city and I realized there were eight shows would be, I was living here at any given moment, I could go to the theater. It was unbelievable. So anyway, my point being that I saw Barnum in its original production, I think twice. Um, always loved it, loved the score, loved the score, uh, but never thought of playing Barnum because again, Jim Dale did things that I could never do and was extraordinary and was, you know, just, but, but, you know, again, the show was very physical in a way that I was like, well, I'm not gonna be able to walk a tightrope. I can't really juggle. And why would I play Barnum? Because I thought of it in those terms. So then as it happens, the director, Gordon Greenberg, who I've known forever, Hi, Gordon. Gordon calls and says, would you like to play Barnum? And I'm like, well, how am I going to play Barnum? Explain to me why you want me to play Barnum. And basically, again, it's all so simple. He's like, well, Barnum didn't walk a tightrope. And Barnum didn't, you know, I mean, the show, yes, requires certain things. But there were ways that we could get around those certain moments that Jim had created or they had created for Jim Dale. Let's face it, if that show had starred someone else in its original production, Odds are the actor wasn't walking a tightrope across the stage at the end of act one. Yeah. Right? There aren't so many actors who can do that. So anyway, the minute that that we decided I would just, again, I was going to do my Barnum. And so Barnum is about being a showman, as we know. Barnum is about, you know, and that show is, is one big, wonderful circus of a show. So I, you know, I just threw myself into, you know, playing this role, singing these songs that I loved and having the opportunity to do a show that I never thought I would do um so yeah it was a yeah it was a wonderful experience it was um because yeah to do shows that you you've loved since you were a kid in that way you know is always something that yeah that I get a kick out of. yeah so I want to ask you about doing the world premiere of the first wives club musical in California so what was it like to be able to you're, you're going to get me in trouble. You're going to get me in trouble, aren't you? Oh, I, I did want to ask you what you thought of the musical adaptation. <laughs> well, um, you know, look, musical theater, music, writing a new musical, it's a collaboration. There are a lot of people involved with putting together a new musical, right? Uh, there is a musical there in the First Wives Club, I believe. I believe that story could be musicalized. They're great. Those women are fabulous larger than life characters who can sing and that story could be musicalized. Um, it just, it didn't work. It didn't, but it was, you know, again, it was just a combination of people coming together to try to make it work. And it wasn't the right combination. It wasn't the right mix of, you know, um, it's hard, it's heartbreaking in a way, you know, again, a very, what a talented company you couldn't want to work with. I mean, I, I'm very thrilled to have, you know, got, met and now, uh, you know, John Dossett, who again, an actor that I, you know, was such a fan of and, uh, and I'm proud to now call a friend that I met doing First Wives. And, um, you know, and then the, those women, Karen Ziamba and Barbara Walsh and Shirley Ralph, for God's sakes. So, you know, um, there was a lot of talent, but it just didn't, it didn't come together. And, it was then tried again in Chicago, right? Several years ago. I don't know exactly when, but I, I know very little about that production, except that 
once again, it didn't obviously work because it certainly hasn't moved forward. And so, you know, it's hard because like I say, you try to drink the Kool-Aid, you have to believe in what you're doing. You know, you can't go out there every night doubting and judging your own material, but, but when you are, and when you know it's not good, and when you know that you now have, because we were at uh, uh, the Old Globe, and regionally, once a show opens, because it wasn't a pre-Broadway tryout, so once the show opened, we could not work on it. We weren't there to work on the show after it opened. We did a lot of work in previews until we opened. But once we opened, it was frozen. And so we had to do that show for the longest five weeks of my life. Now, in beautiful Balboa Park, but no, it's just, it's tough because you know the show isn't working and you know that it needs more work, but you do anything because that's the show you got and that's the show you're going to play. So that's tricky, you know, as opposed to other new shows I've worked on where we have been able to keep working and whether that work ends up for the better or not, at least you're trying to move forward. At least you're trying to solve problems, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was the hard part about First Wives is that once we got to that opening and we hit that wall, uh, we knew, you know, it just, yeah, wasn't working. So, yeah. So, but do you enjoy sort of being part of tryouts and workshops? Oh, and God, yes. Oh, my God. It's, you know, it's a lot of what we do these days, too, especially now, you know, with readings and workshops and stuff, because few shows get off the ground now with a full production until they've had, you know, a couple readings or a workshop or whatever. It's sort of, it's too expensive. It's too difficult. It requires too much these days. And so you want to be in on the ground floor of these projects. You know, you want to be in the room uh, because if it moves forward, you know, ideally to, to, to be a part of that. Um, so yes, there is nothing bad because I love it so much because I love, you know, just talking, I mean, I love, you know, the making of a musical and, and because I also love, you know, I love bomb musicals. I have a fascination mm -hmm. with, with, you know, and growing up in DC, again, I got to see a lot of them shows that, that, you know, tried out there and came here and closed a week later. And, um, there's, and I, I, you know, you wonder why do you love, what is it to love? And I'm like, but there's something so noble and something so they tried so hard, you know, everybody had the best intentions. Nobody tries to go in there and write a bomb musical, you know, and many of them have many worthy, there are some amazing scores, yeah. you know, from yeah. shows uh, that, that were bombs, of course. But anyway, to be a part of that process, to contribute, to have someone say, I'm writing uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go home tonight and I'll, I'll have this tomorrow and then come in the next day and say, here you go. You know, and I wrote this, you know, I wrote this for you. I wrote this with you in mind. I heard your voice, whatever to be, a, you know, to, yeah, to be able to be a part of the process like that and contribute just uh, ideally by just giving again, all you can give, be all that you can be in that way, you know, and if you're right, uh, as far as continuing on, when we first did the Something Rotten the first read that I was invited to by Casey was a week long behind music stands. And, uh, oh my God, I thought the piece was hilarious and loved it. And it just was so fresh. I was like, look at a new musical comedy that's really musical and comedy. But I thought, what if Nostradamus needs to really be a dancer? What if the joke of the number, what if the one of, not the joke of the number, what if the one of the big highlights of the number is that this crazy old, kooky character is really a fierce dancer 
you know? Yeah. Like, you know, someone like Brooks, who, you know, Brooks Ajmanskis, you know, who's like so hilarious and brilliant. And then you're like, and you can dance like that too? You know, I just want to kill him. If you're <laughs> listening, Brooks. But anyway, I was like, oh gosh, I hope I can remain a part of this project because what if Casey wants, what if the all, what if people, you know, they all want him to be a fierce dancer? Um, needless to say, that wasn't the case. And, uh, you know, so I'm very, you know, grateful. But again, you, you get in on the ground floor there and the way that I was able to be a part of that reading. And I wasn't the first one. There were a couple rotten readings before me. Oh. Um, uh, actually, at one point, Martin Short was, or they were, they wanted Martin Short or Martin wanted to do it or wanted to be a part of it is what I've heard. I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, once you're in that room, in that process, especially as I said, with this workshop process that, that I've been able to be a part of with, uh, with Something Rotten, with Big Fish, um, it's, yeah, it's really, you know, special to be in the room with all those creative people working towards ideally one goal and trying to get everybody on the same page, which is the hardest thing to do, the hardest thing to do. And uh, yeah, mostly the, the job of the director, I think, you know, in that way, but it's fascinating to be a part of. And I, I, yeah, I love every opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So what have been some of the shows you've been able to do in workshops that you've been disappointed that haven't gone further? Well, I mean, certainly Big Fish is a disappointment because just it's, it's a disappointment in terms of was it a success on Broadway, I guess, you know, and it wasn't right. We ran for three months. The best part of the whole story is that because we recorded, thank God, uh, ever since then, like a year or two later, I guess, uh, whenever I come out of a stage door, I swear to God, every couple nights at least, someone says to me either, oh my God, I love Big Fish. It was a blah, 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 blah. Or better yet, I just did Big Fish last summer in Summerstock. I, we just did Big Fish at my high school. You know, the fact that it's being done, the fact that the show lives on, is really what it's all about, that people can hear and live and explore that material and share that with audiences of all shapes, of all different, you know what I mean? Again, from the Broadway stage to literally whatever whatever that is, I don't know. But just the fact that it's being done is so rewarding because you know that was a show that was a very emotional journey for all of us. And, and we believed in the story we were telling. The problem was, how to tell that story, which is complicated because of the fantasy nature of it, there were so many possibilities. And sometimes it's easier to have fewer possibilities. And um, so, yeah, it was an interesting journey. And it was, again, wonderful to be a part of, to see how the changes that they made to uh, have to reconcile when you're like, that's not, again, it's all subjective, you know. But when you think that's not a good choice or that was the wrong choice, um, who knows? Was I right? Was I wrong? I don't know. But anyway, you know, it's, uh, it was heartbreaking when it all eventually doesn't turn out the way you want it to. But, um, but again, because that show lives on. Um, also, uh, I did a reading of a musical that Paul Gordon wrote, an adaption of a film called The Front. Um, which is about the blacklist era. And it's a, a really interesting story. And it was a really fun role. Ironically, Zero Mostel plays the role in the film uh, with Woody Allen, a uh, film from the mid seventies. 
but anyway, I did one or two readings of those and it was like a really, it's a, a great role and a really interesting story and time. Um, but that's something that has just been sitting there. You know, it takes, man, it takes a lot to get a production of a show off yeah. the ground these days. It's really hard, as you know. Um, so yeah, I've been involved, you know, it, but uh, it's, you know, you just sort of, you just sort of keep going. Because sometimes the, the ones you think aren't going to go anywhere, all of a sudden they're moving forward. And ones you think, oh, you know, this is really special and this speaks to me in a way. And it just, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's not commercial enough. Maybe, you know, it's tricky. So, yeah. 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 So I want to take the opportunity of you talking about it to ask you a little bit more about Big Fish. So what was it like to be working with Susan Stroman again, who you've worked with a lot of times? Yes. Well, yeah, we on, on the producers. Yes, exactly. Um, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't say enough about Susan Stroman. I mean, again, it's, it's exactly who you want to be in the room with. You know, Susan was a dancer. She was a hoofer. She was, she hates when I say it, but I saw her on stage at the Kennedy Center, pre-Broadway, a revival of the musical Whoopi in 1978-ish, nine, whatever. So she gets it, man. She did it. She gets it. She respects it. She respects everyone in that room who is coming together to put together whatever it might be that we're doing. Um, so right away, it's like there's a, you know, there's just a respect. Um, Jerry Zachs, who I just, you know, have been able to, God, finally blessed to work with on Doubtfire and can't wait to get back in the room with him. Another person who just understands that we're all there to do one thing. We're all there, everybody in the room and then in the theater. I'm talking about the box office, the ushers. Everybody comes together to make this thing happen every night. So anyway, Susan Stroman has a great respect for everybody in that room doing what they do. She also demands the best of you, the most of you. And you want to be that best and that most because you're getting it right back from her and probably from the other people in the room because the group of people that Stroh usually puts together is a very talented, dedicated, you know, wonderful group of people. So, so yeah, to, uh, to get to, again, be asked into the room by Stroh, you know, in one of the earlier Big Fish readings that I did before we actually, you know, went out of town uh, with the show and the full production. I did two, well, a reading or two, and then a workshop, and then Chicago, yeah. So, you know, um, yes, I was honored again to be asked to be a part of it. And um, yeah, and then just be, you know, we all functioned in many ways as an ensemble in that show. So even though I was playing the role of Amos, um, we were also all doing sort of other stuff. So that was, again, to be um, part of the group in that way, creatively, in the way we were shaping the show was, uh, was fun and challenging and challenging because, you know, we had numbers, we would restage numbers, especially when we were out of town in Chicago, we were working, God, I, I feel like we worked every day in Chicago. I mean, maybe like we had Monday off, but, but we were in there every day trying to make that show, you know, the best that it could be in Chicago. And um, it's hard and it requires, you know, again, not only dedication and skill, but respect and respect for everybody in the, you know, and we had some issues. So, and that to me is, you know, when the well gets poisoned, um, it can be tricky. 
you know, and um, so, yeah, I think there were certain things that also have, but again, this is all hindsight. Look at, you know, you look back, it's easy to, to, to point and say, maybe it was maybe, 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 but it's millions of things that happen. And mm -hmm. the fact is, again, at the end of this discussion, big fish lives and breathes and yeah. it might not have won any Tonys or been even nominated for any Tonys, especially, you know, the score that Andrew Lippa wrote to not have been nominated for a Tony, I just think is a crime, but it's all subjective, right? Yeah. So, you know, Mac and Mabel wasn't nominated for best score. Jerry Herman's best score, arguably, was not nominated that year for best score. So, you know, whatever. It is what it is. We've learned that. But um, but I was, uh, yeah, I was, again, just proud to be working with people that I, that I did respect and that I admired and uh, watching everybody really try to put their heart and soul into something to crack it um, is, you know, is fascinating. Um, because again, it's purely subjective, you know, what we do, there's no one right answer. You know, it's everybody trying to come together again, to get on the same page, to tell that story in a way that leaves no, no seams. You know, I think it's something the producers did extraordinarily well, you know? Yeah. 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 So I want to go back for a second before something rotten to ask you about the Adams family, oh. which you you took over for Kevin Chamberlain. So yeah. how did this sort of come to happen? Um, I had gotten back from, I had done a year long on the Young Frankenstein tour, which was so much fun to, to be again, reunited with Stroh and Mel <clears throat> for that tour. So anyway, I'd gotten home and uh, they were looking for replacements because it was almost a year for Adams or it would be a year. And so, yeah, I went in the old fashioned way, baby, I auditioned for Jerry um, and the creative team, I guess, whoever was left at that point. <laughs> um, and uh, really was was hoping to get it for many, I mean, you know, I grew up with that show in many ways, that TV series at the time um, was, you know, I loved. And so the Adams Family was was always something that, you know, I, I, I yeah, had a very big fondness for. I had seen the show try out in Chicago when I was on tour with Frankenstein and the show in Chicago was wild and totally different than the Broadway version because they brought in Jerry Zaks to retool for Broadway. So anyway, um, but I auditioned and I got it. And, you know, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. As hard as those poor people worked originally, that original cast, it was tricky. It was really rough for them. They had a very hard time. And then they opened and got like, slaughtered, slammed by the New York Times. He could not have been meaner. It was just so, my God, it was like, I don't know. Anyway, I mean, the show is what it is, but man. So anyway, they had worked so damn hard and, you know, the show wasn't that well received. Audiences still seem to love it because of course they too love the Adams family. So, and you know, and there's a lot of great stuff in the show. But anyway, um, uh, it was, you know, by the time the second year when 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 the, the replacement cast joined, uh, you know, the show had settled and all the the problems and, and the Michigas was done. And uh, so, yeah, we had a great group of people, the replacement company, and we were able to rehearse as a group in a studio for a couple of weeks. Again, we, so we weren't put in, you know, randomly and sort of, you know, uh, just wild like that. We, we actually had proper rehearsal days with other principals that we're also replacing because we yeah. the great Roger Rees, who, you know, again, I'm just so blessed to have had that opportunity to play with him because he, uh, again, another actor that I was 
just so admired and had seen a Nicholas Nickleby and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, um, yeah. And I, again, you talk about having a character to disappear into or to, to, to escape into and this iconic character that audiences right away embrace. Mm -hmm. You know, it's wonderful as an actor to come on stage playing a character that audiences, you know, a lot of them right away, just love. So mm -hmm. half your job is, you know, if you do it right, you're on the right track. So, so I loved, uh, I loved that. I loved everything that role that, that he stood for, his track in the show, the, the, the songs I got to sing, um, the amazing opening set, the design. When that curtain goes up and you see that, that house and that tree and the yard, you know, I'm a big fan of haunted houses. I would live in the haunted mansion at Disney if I could. Um, so to, to, you know, they'd call places every night and, and you know, we'd start because it would start the curtains after the overture would like half the overture would play or whatever, or most of it. And then the curtains would part and there was the family. So, you know, we'd be on stage during the overture and just to be in that space and as it was lit with the curtain down, I mean, it was like literally being in a haunted house, you know, I just, I loved that. And, and then that curtain would open and the audience would go crazy. And um, uh, it was just, uh, yeah. And I was back home working on Broadway uh, again in a principal role, you know, I never stopped. You know, I'm always that kid and I'm like, wow, unbelievable. So <clears throat> yeah, it was a great group. Uh, uh, Brooke Shields was lovely, kept us going. Um, yeah, Heidi Blickenstaff, who I then got to work with again in Rotten, you know, we just adore such a talented man. That's a tricky role. And it was wonderful to see Heidi embrace that role and put her stamp on it in a way that was so different than what that hack Carolee Carmelo did. <laughs> And by hack, I mean, again, another, oh God, to work with her because we got to do Sweeney together. I mean, all these, you know, that's the joy of being, for me right now, being in this business, having to continue to work in this business is when I get to work with people who I have admired and respected for years, who I just think are the, you know, just in so many ways, the best of the best. And uh, so, yeah, there's two of them, Carolee and Heidi. But, but yes, um, Adams was was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, got almost a year out of it, the second year of that run. So yeah, it was a great gig. Yeah. yeah. So that was a show that you closed out, I think. As I did. So what have been your experiences with closing nights on Broadway? Oh, closing nights, closing nights. Yeah, they're so tricky, right? They're so, each one is its own, you know, experience. Um, Certainly, uh, that was, you know, we knew it was happening. We knew it was going to happen. They had, you know, announced, you know, we had like at least two months before we knew we were closing. So it wasn't anything that was like immediate. Mm. Um, yeah, it's always sort of sad. I mean, in that way, again, because it becomes a job after a while, which is a great thing. We all want a job. But um, depending on how emotionally attached you are to a gig, obviously it's a different thing. And so, so yeah, I remember it being, it was New Year's Eve, I think. I remember, I think we had a matinee. We closed, I think at a matinee. And then we, Brooke Shields had a big New Year's Eve party. That's how I remember it, but <laughs> don't trust me. But anyway, um, you know, Big Fish was, Big Fish was tough. Big Fish was tough. Cause you know, that last scene is tough to begin with, you know, gathering at the river for his funeral and the song and the sores. And it's just, my God, in rehearsal, we were all, 
God, it's my favorite. It's one of the greatest pieces of direction I've ever been given by a director. When Susan Stroman said to us, you know, I know how hard, you know, because the music is so gorgeous and, and, and it soars and the character is just singing how, you know, beautiful his life has been and what it's all meant. And, and it's just, oh God. And Stro, because we were all crying. We were all crying. We're not supposed to cry. We're supposed to be, oh, our friend, uh, we love him so much. And we're supposed to be all happy and whatever. And she just said, be the sunlight. She said, be the sunlight. And it just, for me anyway, it was um, what I needed to sort of click over to, to, to not emotionally, you know, be devastated by it. That being said, the, the, the show before the closing of Big Fish was the hardest. So I don't remember which, like if it was a Saturday night because we closed on a Sunday matinee, but the, the, the next show for Big Fish, I remember being the hardest for us all emotionally. The last show, you're sort of, not that you're numb, but you're like, all right, it's the last show. There's something, I guess maybe the, the reality sets in, I'm not sure, but but uh, the second to last show for Big Fish was really hard. Um, and then, you know, I'll never forget Stephen Weber's last night in The Producers. I was staying on, but Stephen Weber was finishing his nine months or however long it was. And poor Stephen has to sing that beautiful Leo in the courtroom till him. And he could hardly get through it. He was so emotional. It was his last performance. And I'm dying because I'm, you know, and it's like, it goes against everything, you know, you're not supposed to be, you know. And I had those moments. I remember my last performance in the second national tour because that was also a very special company for me because I got to originate, we got to originate, that entire company got to originate that second national tour. So me and the great Andy Taylor um, and, a, and an extraordinary company of actors, we were the second national tour that opened in Boston and that tour continued for several years. I did the first six months, I think. And uh, that meant so, that company and that uh, having that experience meant so much to me. So I remember my last night in that company, which was in Chicago, back in Chicago, ironically, was very difficult. And when I was sitting in the, in the courtroom scene and he was singing and Andy was singing till him, I was a mess. I just, you know, I can't, you know, it's, it's a tough disconnect. It really is. It's, it's so, you know, we put, it's everything. It's your family. It's your life. It's your, it's your love. It's, uh, you know, so uh, yeah, off the top of my head, those are, those are closings. I remember. Um, yeah. There've been so many of them. <laughs> oh. so you recently, the most recently before the quarantine was starring in something rotten on Broadway. So mm -hmm. what did you think at first when you were first starting to get involved with it of this sort of crazy subject matter? You did? Well, I thought it was, I mean, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was a fabulous conceit. The story I just thought was, was hilarious. What if this, yeah. you know, I mean, the randomness of it. And again, I mean, you know, that's why musical comedy is so freeing because you can write a story about a guy who's trying to compete with Shakespeare, who goes to a soothsayer, who tells him that the musical is gonna be a big thing. I mean, you know, only in musical theater can that really truly come to life. So yeah, so I remember again, the first week of the read, I did, the, the, the week long reading of the piece that I did at that point um, with, uh, with Danny Burston actually in the lead role. And uh, anyway, I just remember thinking it was hilarious and that the score was fun you know I'm really I'm tricky with scores because I'm a traditionalist in many ways and I'm all for contemporary I'm all for I'm all for whatever moves the story forward but you know in a good old classic musical comedy you know I need certain I need to get certain things and 
<laughs> and that score gave it to me. I was like, wow, these boys have written a really good sort of poppy contemporary, but yet very traditional musical theater score. Good for them. And they've written an entirely different score for Doubtfire, which is even better for them. It's, it's they're, you know, again, man, talent. So, um, so yeah, I thought Rotten was delightful. I, my only fear commercially, as far as, as we were moving forward, and then when I was lucky enough to be asked to then be a part of a four week workshop that we did that went so well that we canceled our out of town tryout. Uh -huh. But my concern was that it was too, it was gonna be looked at as too meta, as too nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Isn't it fun to make fun of musicals and musical theater and all of the jokes that sort of, you know, maybe had been, had been done to death. Had they been, I wasn't sure. You know, to be honest with you, I was like, is this going to play, especially with our friends and our industry? Or are they going to be like, oh, look, another, you know, another number that's, you know, like, because what was I thinking? Oh, oh, um, Casey had just done Aladdin, right? And there's that big number, Friend Like Me and Aladdin, and they talked about how it, you know, referenced other numbers. And I was like, oh, is this number going to be too much like that? Or, you know, you, you think these things, of course, you want the thing to be as good as it can be. So anyway, that was my only fear that maybe it wasn't going to play like we hoped it would play. And boy, were we wrong. Um, because, yeah, we, uh, you know, doing it in a room was one thing, because, of course, the workshop, we had audiences of what, maybe 50 at the most, you can squeeze chairs in. It's, you know, it's crazy. So you're getting a response, but you're not getting a response, you know. Yeah. But so anyway, we did a group sales presentation at the Little Schubert Theater on 42nd Street. And we did a couple songs from the show, one of them being a musical. And this was for the group sales people. This was for, you know, a fairly jaded bunch in a good way, maybe. But, you know, you just don't know what you're going to get. They've seen it all. They want something that's going to sell to their people. But, you know, who knows? Well, man, the response there was just we were like, wow. Wow, that's exciting. Okay, that's good. We were like, wow, because it was impressive. And then the first, you know, invited dress and again, things that we just never, when they stood up and they kept cheering and I'm looking at Brian and he's looking at me and it just was surreal. The audience's response to that, that number and to the show in general was, was fantastic because nobody expected it. You know, the producers, people knew the producers. They knew the source material. They knew Mel, they knew Stroh. You know, as far as the product that we were getting, there was expectations. Nobody knew what the hell something rotten was. Nobody knew these writers, you know, Casey, of course, yes. But I'm just saying we came in with no, nobody was expecting anything for better or for worse. So when people were mostly delighted by it, mostly, except for one certain person in a certain paper who always <laughs> seems to rain on everyone's parade, but not anymore. But anyway, um, yeah, when most people started reacting the same way and just loving the show, it was, uh, yeah, it was thrilling. So what was it like to be able to develop a musical, which I think is one of the best numbers ever with Casey Nicola? <clears throat> yeah, it, um, it was, you know, terrifying on the outset, of course, because it was so big and, yeah. and, you know, I mean, I was, th this this company on stage, man, these, you know, again, it was the best of the best. Um, the, the fact of the matter is no one auditioned for the original Broadway cast of Something Rotten. 
all of those people were picked by Casey, were invited into the room, either in a workshop or whatever, to do that show. Um, so that says everything you need to know about, you know, how Casey puts a company together. That he is very, you know, and, and again, because Casey also was one of us, a hoofa, a singer, dancer, actor, um, mm -hmm. you know, Casey gets it and has a respect for it. And so he knows, he knows the people that he wants to work with. Just like, you know, when you're in a room with other actors, after a four week workshop, you pretty much know, I want to work with them again. I want to work with them again. Eh, maybe not so much, oh, you know, whatever. <laughs> Just as far as whatever that is, the energy, the participation, the, the attitude, the respect, all the things I keep talking about. So, but here's a perfect, the, the perfect case in point of, of, of this says everything you need to know about Casey Nicola as a collaborator and a director and a very smart man. So there's a little section in Rotten in, in, in a musical where I have to tap, you know, and then Brian's like, what's that? You know, it's a tap break or whatever I say, dance break. But anyway, so Nostradamus has to tap. Well, I don't, I, I, I don't tap. I've never really, you know. So it was sort of basic stuff, but nonetheless, you know, Casey wanted to challenge me a little and obviously wanted whatever he envisioned that little tap break would be. Well, part of it involved a pullback, which I would work on every night when I got home. I, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't make the sounds. You know, it's about, you gotta get those sounds right. Obviously that's what tap is all about. Well, no sooner had I sort of gotten to that point where I was like, I'm trying, I, I promise you, I said, I promise you, I will get this. I promise you, because I had the rest, I had the rest. And he said to me, you know what? Don't worry about it, let's change it. Let's change it. And he changed it and he changed it because he wanted me to look good. And, you know, and again, by me looking good, he looks good. It, but it was, there are many, many, I think, directors, choreographers who would have said, okay, well, go home again tonight, see you tomorrow, you know and would have every right to do that and have every right to make me bust my ass to learn that step. But, you know, for whatever reason, it just wasn't happening. And instead of it becoming a thing, Casey was like, we'll change it. And we changed it to something that I could do that looked good. And I will never forget that. And I will always be grateful. But that in a nutshell is, uh, you know, again, the collaborative effort and how something like a musical became, you know, what it became, but it was, um, it was being shot out of a cannon because, you know, every night at 20 after or 25 after, whenever it was, I would roll onto that stage. And for the next, you know, we had a brief book scene and then boom, we were in that number. And, uh, and I always called it, you know, my, my 15 minutes of gay cardio because I went out there and, <clears throat> you know, just, it was, it took everything, but it was again, such a thrill i mean talk about finding energy in places and and just you know letting the momentum of a number just take you it was the most unquestionably thrilling uh experience number i've ever gotten to do consistently and then the audience reaction the first several months literally standing and cheering and it was crazy and to this day uh, yeah, I'll never, you know, and, and, and again, Brian Darcy James, the great, great Brian Darcy James, another actor I can't say enough about as a collaborator, as a person, as a, gosh, you know, such a good guy. And it, you can see it in his work. You can see yeah. that heart. Anyway, we would stand there. It was on Brian to break the applause. Brian had a line. 
So it wasn't up to the conductor to come in with the playoff. It wasn't up to anyone else but Brian to break the applause. And God bless him. And those first couple of nights, you know, he would sort of try or think, well, all right, I have to, we have to keep going. They won't stop applauding, but we have to keep going. And, you know, we would just, it was crazy. We would just give into it. And the entire ensemble, you know, we're all on stage. I mean, believe me, that number, you know, let's face it, it's nice to be front and center, but that number is what it is because of those, I don't know how many it was, 16, who, I don't know, though they were extraordinary, you know, and talk about a, you know, I mean, you look at that ensemble of Something Rotten, go on IBDB and look at the credits of the people who were on that stage doing that number. And that is why that number was what it was because everybody in that number understood what it meant to sell and be a part of a number like that, what it was about, what it sell, the joy of, you know. So yeah, again, I still, it's something I still look back on and I think, did that happen? You know, did that happen? Um, yeah, at the same theater where the producers was, which is even crazier, right? Right back at the mm -hmm. St. James, crazy. So I want to ask you, you also stayed in that show for the whole two years that it was running till the very end. So when you're doing that, how do you manage to sort of keep your energy and keep your excitement to be doing it? You know, it, with that show, especially, man, it was not hard because the show is so fun. The show is so joyous. Everything, that sh you know, and the audiences loved it. So, you know, you're going to work. It's different if you're going to work and you're doing, you know, Long Day's Journey and Tonight. It's different when you're going to work and doing, well, and you know, any other show has its, every show has its, you know, feeling, its atmosphere, its whatever. And, and God knows, you know, rotten, just like producers in many ways, you know, man, it's a celebration. It's a musical comedy. So because of the people that also were in that building who all knew what it meant to do eight shows a week, to give it all for eight shows a week, total pros, everybody, sharing a dressing room with Brooks Asmanskis was the happiest, some of the happiest times of my life. I mean, it just was everything I'd ever dreamt of. Again, you know, going to work, doing what I love on Broadway, you know, with these people in a show that people are loved. I mean, it, you know, so yeah, it was wonderful. I loved every minute of it. I only wish the show were had run for 10 years or 20 years and I could, you know, have the joy of going back or doing it again or, or whatever that might be because it was, um, yeah, really, really special. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, loved it. <laughs> so the very last show I want to ask you about is Mrs. Doubtfire, which is your most recent show. So yeah. how did you begin to get involved in this? Well, this one, I sort of got involved in the, in the last part of the process, which really was this out of town tryout en route to Broadway. Uh, they had done at least one or two. Oh, wait, I sort of, it's funny, I've forgotten something now. Okay, flashback to 2015, after Something Rotten has just opened. And Kevin McCullum, our producer, calls me and says, would you be a part of a table read of a musical version of Mrs. Doubtfire? that we're, we just want to read bare bones, just starting out, let's get a sense. And this was written by an entirely different team of collaborators who you've heard of. Anyway, didn't really work. Didn't really work. Doesn't move forward at that point. That, that I guess that incarnation 
done. Flash forward to last year or two years ago, I guess, and, and I hear, oh, they're doing a reading of Mrs. Doubtfire now in its new form with the Kirkpatrick boys and John O'Farrell from Something Rotten, directed by Jerry. Um, and they do a workshop reading thing or whatever, and I am not a part of it. And I'm a little, you know, I'm a little, I'm like, oh, gee, you know, I know there's, I think there's a role for me, sort of, but, you know, you know, showbiz, baby. And of course, in that incarnation, the role was played by the great Mario Cantone. Oh. So um, anyway, flash forward, uh, uh, Mario did not want to continue with the project for whatever reason. I think he had other stuff lined up. I'm not exactly sure. All I know is they're auditioning for the role of Frank, his brother, <clears throat> and would you come in? And of course I would come in. Um, I'm a huge fan of Jerry Zachs. Every time I had ever auditioned, I worked with Jerry briefly on Adam's Family. You know, the director comes back in sort of at the end to put you into the show. So he was at a couple of rehearsals and he would give notes and that was a great experience, but it wasn't like working with him in the room, you know, yeah. day after day and in a rehearsal process. Um, and every time I had auditioned for him over the years, he would always give you an adjustment he would always, you know, he'd stop you, but he'd come up, but he was always, it was always just a feel good audition. I always felt good, you know, and most of the time I didn't get the gig, but I was happy to have been in the room with Jerry and the audition was satisfying in that way. So anyway, this was the, th that exact case. Um, I went in, I, uh, I knew obviously the boys from Rotten. So those relationships existed because, you know, there's nothing better than going into the room for an audition when you know the people behind the table in some way, you know, it just, it's, you know, it helps, I guess, depending, I guess, unless you're freaked out because, oh my God, it's so-and-so. But anyway, um, and I auditioned and I got it. Yeah. I mean, basically that's how that happened. And um, yeah, didn't think, you know, again, it's one of those, you just never know how things play out. I didn't hear for, it felt like a couple of months even. So I was convinced that I hadn't gotten it because I hadn't heard anything. And, uh, and I knew they were starting rehearsals to go to Seattle. And um, you know how we all just play those mind games. And I thought, well, no, they would have had to have cast by now. I, I obviously didn't get it. And, but you know, you don't know when they're gonna make offers or when they're deciding to actually do that official thing or whatever. So anyway, so lo and behold, um, yes. And I got to then again, check another box, which was rehearse a show or especially a new show with Jerry Zachs, because I only wish, I, I literally, I thought to myself after like a week or two, I was like, wow, if I'd worked with Jerry like 20 or 25 years ago, I'd be a much better actor right now. <laughs> I'd be much funnier. I'd be much, I mean, you know, just again, the idea that I felt like I was learning, you know, so much. I mean, simple stuff, basic stuff, but nonetheless, it's, it was a, a really wonderful, wonderful thing to uh, to work with Jerry because I had heard so much about how he works, you know, and different directors drive with different actors in different ways. And some people, you know, feel one way, some people another. I, God, man, you know, I mean, believe me, anyone worth their salt knows to, to, to trust Jerry, but to collaborate with Jerry in that way. Um, and uh, it's been, yeah, it's just been fantastic and, and heartbreaking for us all to have had it, you know, so quickly just taken away and in, in like the, the most exciting part of the process. Mm -hmm. We were literally in previews here in the city, you know, we did three previews and then we all shut down. And um, so, you know, it's, uh, uh, but 
but we are, you know, we're coming back and God willing, it, it, things are looking, things are looking up in many ways. Yeah. And we have people who will hopefully take this seriously. And uh, uh, yeah, and we'll, and we'll be back. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you just one question about this shutdown. So when did you find out that you would have to stop for a while? Well, we were uh, we were in rehearsal because again we we had just started previews, so we were still in rehearsal every day, making changes. Um, and I remember Wednesday night we were doing the show, the last show we did, and I remember getting an alert on my phone that the NBA had ceased the season. The NBA had put the season on hold; they were stopping. And I immediately thought, "That's it. That's a because." They were doing it for the very reasons that we all needed to not congregate. I mean, you know, so I thought when I saw that, I was like, we are not long for this world. We are gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna shut down at some point. So yeah, the next day, literally we're in rehearsal and we're all there, but people are working in various places maybe or not working and in their dressing rooms. And we were told we're having a company meeting at four o'clock. So at four o'clock, everyone gathered in the house, in the theater. And we pretty much, New and at that point we'd also gotten word from either friends or or on a chat board or something that the Broadway League had met and decided that as of five o'clock that night Broadway was shutting down for the foreseeable future or no for four weeks until Easter that was the first that's how it all started we're going to suspend operations for four weeks through Easter so yeah so that's how we all found out we were sitting there and it was just you know I mean again. We saw it coming to an extent, you know, obviously this yeah. was an issue. We could not all gather and I mean, this was, it was, you know, it was, that's how it was spreading and blah, blah, blah. So the reality was we knew we had to do it. It had to happen, but it was just, uh, you know, it was devastating. I mean, look, it's been devastating for so many people in so many professions all over the world. And um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's been hard, you know, it sucks. And I realize how much I miss the theater. I mean, I miss it in in so many ways. I mean, not just because it's my livelihood and I've been blessed enough to be a part and to work and to do this. And um, But yeah, you know, going to the theater, sharing that experience, being excited in the way that nothing else can excite you when those lights go down because anything can happen and we're gonna all share it together and it's only gonna happen this way tonight. So, you know, I really miss and I feel it in my core in a way that's, it's, you know, it's tough. Um, so I guess that's good in the sense that, you know, I know how much it means to me. I know how important it is and I will continue to, to respect it and work hard for it and not take it for granted, you know, when I'm working because, you know, for most of us, I, again, I've been very blessed. I've said it a million times today, I think, but you know, we still go job to job. And I've still had a couple months in a row where I've been like, not sure what's next. You know, it's just the reality of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but so I, I but again, I, I will never take for granted the opportunity to, to continue to work professionally, you know, for what I love and for what so many people, you know, and again, talking to you and, and seeing your love of this and knowing that that's how you know, that's how this all continues. That's how from one generation to the next, whatever it is that sparks that interest, whatever it is that makes, uh, you know, 
makes us special in that way are able to you know really appreciate it and i i think it's wonderful that we live in a world right now where you can be exposed to so much of it whether it is stuff that's online videos old footage um all of the scores that are available to listen to you know of shows that were released that you know when i was growing up um so many things were out of print i'd heard about shows but I didn't know, you know, what did that show sound like? And then all of a sudden, when CDs started coming out and they released all these old shows on CD, and I, you know, oh my God, it was buying like crazy. But, um, but anyway, the fact that I hope um, there's always rejuvenation, there's always a continuation, a handing off of the baton, if you will, you know, generationally. And um, because we've had this pause right now, and we've all had to sort of reset and um, identify what things are important to us. You know, I hope that all of us who this is important to us will return with an even greater passion and even greater dedication to make it happen and to share it and to find ways to share it, to get more people coming to the theater, to tell more stories that are universal, that are about us all perhaps, or whatever that is, I don't know. And now I'm talking now, this is turning into a whole other podcast. Now it's like philosophical, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's um, yeah, I love it so, so very much. And I cannot wait to return and, uh, and share it, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed being able to talk to you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next week when I am joined by songwriter and cabaret director Barry Kleinbart. He has co-written the musicals Was, Perfect Harmony, Metropolitan, Angelina, and more, and is the recipient of the Ed Kleban Award for Lyric Writing, the ASCAP Award, and more. He is also the author of the show 13 Things About Ed Carpellati, which starred Penny Fuller. He has written cabaret material for Penny Fuller, Brent Barrett, Anita Gillette, Petula Clark, Regis Philbin, Kay Ballard, Len Cariou, Karen Mason, Heather McRae, Joe Sullivan Lesser, and many more. He has also been the director of the popular series Jamie DeRoy and Friends since its inception. He rewrote The Prince of Grand Street for the Jewish Rep and put together Lip Sinka's popular act Show Trash, so make sure to come back for that.